0: folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I got to work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering... Is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project and patrons get perks for an ongoing donation of just four dollars a month you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online including bonus interviews and special subscriber only episodes if you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash File and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. <laughs> Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... Chosun Exchange is promoting capitalism in North Korea. Since 2009, the Singapore based nonprofit has facilitated training workshops for everyday North Koreans in economics, entrepreneurship, and urban planning. In this conversation, Chosun Exchange Associate Director of Research, Dr. Andre Abrahamian, discusses how the introduction of some free market economic theory under the Kim Jong un regime is changing a remarkably insular country. We'll also talk about the prospects for further change in North Korean society in this new era and discuss how initiatives like the Chosun Exchange could impact how the United States, South Korea, and other countries approach North Korea policy. And what's it like to fly Air Korea? Dr. Abrahamian reports. All this and more on episode 66 of The Korea File. This episode was produced in collaboration with the University of Michigan's Nam Center for Korean Studies.
1: I was just backpacking around Asia and kind of bumbled my way to Korea where I uh, ended up teaching English, as so many do, and became sort of fascinated by the division of Korea, and yeah, I think visiting Panmunjom really blew my mind actually. Panmunjom, the uh, DMZ. The point at which the two sides meet on the dividing line that separates the two countries. It's, it's just such an absurd place to, had a profound effect on me.
0: From having your mind blown to beginning to work in North Korea with the Chosen Exchange, which we'll talk about in a minute, what, what was that transition?
1: Well, I was working on a PhD, studying, lo- looking at North Korea issues, and sort of at the nadir of that process when I was like, what am I doing? You know, what path does that lead me down? i just going to be another analyst looking at North Korea from afar Um, I happened to be introduced to a guy called Jeffrey C young Singaporean who was just getting the idea for Joseon Exchange off the ground Um, and it sounded like not only a great idea, but the kind of thing I could contribute to, and a way for me also to to get involved in North Korea with North
0: Koreans. North Korea appears very opaque to much of the world, and particularly to Americans, which is why your Nam Center Undergraduate Fellows Lecture today is such a fascinating opportunity for our community to learn something about the Hermit Kingdom. It's called Social Changes You See When Working in North Korea. You've been working for social change in North Korea through an organization called Chosun Exchange. Tell us about that. So
1: Chosun Exchange is a Singapore-based nonprofit, and we do training for North Koreans in entrepreneurship and economic policy. And we're trying to encourage the sort of economic changes that will, will help not only improve the lives of North Koreans economically, but also socially too, so it's not like we're social activists in, in a direct sense, but we, we focus on economic issues.
0: The origins of the initiative are in 2007 when uh, Jeffrey C., that's a Singaporean, had the idea for the Joseon exchange. What was his idea? How did that, How did that evolve?
1: He visited the country as so many do on a tour, which despite the limitations, you know, can can be a real learning experience and uh, uh, challenging in both good and negative ways. He happened to meet a young graduate student. They began talking about business and it came out that she wanted to become a businesswoman and kind of show the guys that she could do it too and be a success and make deals and grow companies. And, you know, he thought, well, I didn't expect to meet this kind of person here. But it speaks to the fact, and I'll be talking about this tonight at the University of Michigan, that this is a country with 24 million people. And in the West in particular, the sort of appetite for news or the kinds of news stories we have an appetite for are pretty, pretty limited, right? So these kinds of stories and these kinds of people tend not to filter into our consciousness about North Korea.
0: Looking at the timeline for the Joseon Exchange, from the initial idea to its implementation, we see that North Korean partners first expressed interest in the program in 2008. Who were these partners? This is clearly a program that's in collaboration with the North Korean government.
1: Yeah. From idea to really getting it rolling with programming in 2010, one of the barriers or one of the key bottlenecks in North Korea is communications, right? It is, as you mentioned earlier, it is an opaque Society by design. It's difficult for outsiders to understand it. And so it took a while of fishing around to try and find a partner that was interested. You know, you can't just go online and, and look up a list of NGOs in North Korea or, or even government agencies that might be willing to talk to you. Um, so, in the end, after a couple of, I guess, awkward attempts to work with people who were less than interested or less than honest. Um, We found a a committee that deals with cultural exchanges primarily, but they had a good young team that kind of immediately got what we were trying to do and what we were offering. And uh, it's been a a really fruitful partnership, I think,
0: with shared shared goals in a lot of ways. Right. So we tend to hear almost exclusively about the military side of North Korea. But as a civil society project, uh, what aspect of the North Korean government is it that you're working with?
1: Well, we don't really work directly with a government agency, but depending on the program, we will invite government officials to participate. So I guess we have two main tracks. We have uh, workshops and, and programming that focuses on entrepreneurship and business skills. And we also have a track that focuses more on economic policy uh, and implementation, so if it 's on the policy side of things, it makes sense to include government officials and academics, the kind of people who have to think through and implement these policies so it
0: can it, it can be a variety of agencies really. North Korea has academics. North Korea has people interested in economic issues. I thought it was all soldiers in that country
1: <laughs> yeah well it's it 's easy to think that looking at the news um, obviously academics and bureaucrats uh, don't make for really good imaging on, on TV. But yeah, they're, they're, especially under Kim Jong-un, there's been an increase in interest in how to run the economy in a way that is more productive and, and more successful.
0: Joseon Exchange focuses on several different programs, which you were kind of mentioning, including Women in Business, Provincial Development, and the Young Entrepreneurs Network. Walk us through these programs a little bit. Uh, what is the Young Entrepreneurs Network?
1: Um We wanted to have a series of workshops that that could bring especially young business people together in a way that provided them an opportunity to not only learn from the foreigners we brought in but learn from each other and continue to support each other uh, you know after the group after our groups leave the country and they're there on on their own so that there was a focus on on that during that series. The women in business that was uh, frankly my favorite. Program, uh, and really, we've run into hard times with that because funding for these kinds of programs has become really difficult as the nuclear issue continues to drag on. There are reputational and sanctions risks uh, for organizations who might want to donate to just an exchange. So, unfortunately, it do- it's not clear if we're going to get to have more of those. But you could, in the Women in Business programs, we'd have a majority of female participants um we didn't ask for a hundred percent we thought that would be too challenging uh, and at first our korean partners were like really just for women yeah is this gonna work they'd not heard of such a thing but um you could really see like solidarity and understanding of shared challenges between our our female lecturers our female volunteer workshop leaders and the participants so even though i wasn't you know, either of, the, of those, you could you could see it, you could really feel it, and that was quite powerful because we're talking about people who have so much separating them, right? You know, North Korean businesswomen and foreign businessmen. There's acres of cultural and political space between them, but you know, you could still build this connection that was really
0: uh, inspirational. Provincial development is interesting. We often think of a lot of the development happening exclusively in Pyongyang, but. I don't know if that's accurate. I'm not an academic about North Korea. So you also work with developing the provinces outside of the major uh, metropolis of North Korea.
1: Yeah, well, a few years ago, um, the North Koreans rolled out a special economic zone policy. And that's, you know, it's hard to call it a success, broadly speaking. But what that did for us was it opened up a space for us to be able to conduct programs out in the provinces and bring in different actors, different people than we would normally get in in Pyongyang. Um, I mean, you're right to assume the level of development in Pyongyang and the provinces is very different. Um, Pyongyang is where the majority of the the wealth uh, is accumulated um, and you can you can feel the difference when you first go to Pyongyang you think oh my god I'm so isolated from the world like there's no nothing no international stuff here it feels so backward and then you spend a few days in the provinces and you get back to Pyongyang You're just like oh the capital city I can have an espresso or I can have pizza it's so international so this electricity <laughs> tw- almost 24 hours a day incredible
0: On the website's frequently asked questions, are we allowed to speak to North Koreans? It's answered as follows. While tourists have very few chances to speak with locals, our workshops offer a great opportunity to chat with the Korean participants, learn about their professional life, and work together during interactive exercises that you can make a part of your session. Outside of workshops, Koreans tend to be hesitant to talk to foreigners in public, but our local partners are always happy to chat and can tell you more about their country than you'll ever learn from CNN. Are these local partners workshop participants or government minders? Tourists often have to be accompanied in North Korea when traveling around or doing anything. But in the program from the FAQ, it sounds like these are just workshop participants. Uh, Which are they?
1: Um, That specifically, I think when we say partners, we refer to the the people that we're organizing the workshops with. So communicating with beforehand uh, to help uh, find the right audiences for the content and to help tailor the content to the audiences Um, and they're also the ones that help us uh, select participants to come to our programs overseas. Um, So people that we work with uh, beyond just the workshop setting. Um, The, you know, they're... I would... I never really think of them as minders. Uh, They are responsible for our actions in country. So, you know, if we... If we do something stupid, they're going to have to hear about it from, from someone else. So, you know, it behooves us not to, uh, not to cause them trouble. And the same, you know, I think the same is also true for tourists when they visit, too. You know, the guides are really in the tourist industry. They do also have to help enforce the country's rules and stop you from breaking rules also. So in that sense, you know, they are minders.
0: Uh, the workshops are conducted in English, primarily or exclusively?
1: Uh, they're they're translated, so, um, yeah, sequential translation.
0: How common is the ability to communicate in English in North Korea?
1: You know, among university graduates, probably a little better than you might expect. Um, it is the international language. Uh, obviously, studying Chinese has become more popular and more important in recent years, but... You know, English is the international language, and so people do have to learn it if they want a career that in any way involves them with international stuff.
0: So, are these primarily people uh, associated with universities? I'm wondering what is the socioeconomic <laughs> strata of North Koreans who are participating? Is this kind of across the board, or are you seeing more of the kind of elites that that some might associate with Pyongyang living?
1: Yeah, I think actually that's one of the that's one of the misnomers about Korea. You, you hear, look, Pyongyang. It's only a city for elites, but it's a city of two to three million people, depending on how you're counting. The people in our programs are a range, I would say, from lower middle class to upper middle class. Um, you know, they're not they're not the the real core elites, um, but I, I know of at least a couple of participants that have their own car, and by North Korean standards, that is. You know ext- you're doing extremely well if you have a Rich. car yeah. but I also I also know people who have basically no changes of clothes you know are pretty minimal you know sports casual and suit and you know that's it's hard to think of them as
0: being being elite yeah huh. you know? the website also says that participants tend to be very diverse but what does diversity look like in Pyongyang? <laughs> yeah, that's a,
1: that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, there's not a lot of ethnic diversity, uh, so that's like one axis that we don't really move around. Um, diverse, I think, in the sense of of their background. So, I mean, like, we do have um, a lot of university grads, the majority, but also some participants who didn't get to go to university and have sort of moved up in in, uh, the social system. We also, there's also gender which we try to focus on too and make sure it isn't
0: just a room full of dudes. (laughs) Uh, This FAQ was really interesting. It reads, is Air Corio really the worst airline in the world? This is the government-run airline in North Korea. The website answers this question. Definitely not. Those rankings are partly based on network size, code shares, frequent flyer miles, (laughs) and things that Air Corio certainly is weak on. And while the squishy hamburger that's being served during the flights to Pyongyang will not win any awards, Air Corio offers very friendly and professional service, comfortable seats and smooth flights, while a single channel with music videos of the North Korean girl band Morambang may not be everyone's favorite choice of in-flight entertainment. We'd pick Air Koryo over many other airlines any day. You've flown on Air Koryo.
1: I have many, so, many well, yeah, times. What
0: is it like? I mean, that just seems like such an ordinary domestic kind of thing to do, take a flight, but yeah. in North Korea maybe it feels a little unusual.
1: Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> like much in North Korea, it's basically normal, but then, you know, there's a couple of uh, strange, weird things. Um, you know, they're they're pretty lax about seatbelt enforcement. Um, can you smoke? You, you can't. You can no longer. Oh. No, you can no longer smoke. Actually, I don't even know when, when that stopped. Probably when China started enforcing no smoking on planes. Mm. Um, but, you know, like uh, the waitresses, I'm uh, sorry, the uh, the flight attendants um, have learned quite quirky English. You know, they haven't been exposed to that many, uh, that much foreign, uh, foreign learning material. So I, I know one of them who, um, instead of like, how may I help you? Or like, what do you need? Somehow she learned like, what is your problem as her question. So <laughs> you're rummaging around in your seat back or whatever. She'll come up and be like, excuse me, what is your problem? <laughs> what is your problem? You know, Very right?
0: aggressive. Oh, yeah. Un- unbelievable. Uh,
1: or, you know, I've, uh, I speak, I speak some Korean. And so, um, once on a fairly empty flight, I got to chatting with, with a, a young flight attendant, and somehow we we went from like what's it like visiting Korea very quickly to uh, the necessity of military first politics and and how the the leader was making sure their country had was defended and like a pretty I got a pretty long lecture and I I can't say I've really had that in any other airlines either.
0: again looking at the website one of the things that struck me was the humanizing factor of its content and by that I mean that. These are normal everyday North Koreans. As the American Korea expert Bruce Cummings has written, they eat the same food, they drink the same drink, they sing the same old songs as their brothers and sisters in the south part of the peninsula. When we hear about North Koreans in the media, it's exclusively about the unpredictable, unstable Kim regime, and we hear about missile launches. We hear about famine and privation. But there are almost 25 million people in North Korea. So why does the Western media never tell the stories of normal, everyday North Koreans? Why are things like what Joseon Exchange is doing so rarely heard about?
1: I think they're just, you know, there's a whole world of news to cover, right? And there isn't that much attention span for North Korea. And, you know, their missile and, and WMD programs are a challenge to the, the U.S.-led uh, system in in East Asia and they're important and you know it is a place with a lot of hardship and privation and that's important and you know it is a place with some weird rules, not as many as we love as as we see in Western media you know the males don't have to get Kim jong-un's haircut for example but you know beyond that uh it's there just doesn't seem to be the attention span for a story uh that is a little more nuanced or difficult to comprehend. And of course the other side of that coin is North Korea does make it make it difficult for for people to get in and report on on the DPRK.
0: As North Korea adopts aspects of a capitalist economic system and with more outside information reaching North Koreans, what are the prospects for further change in their society and what kind of changes have you seen as part of Joseon Exchange?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, they They definitely, uh, in terms of their official rhetoric, uh, are going nowhere near capitalism. They're still trying to build a socialist society. But um, there does seem to be a recognition that the market mechanism is going to have to play some role in that. Um, And so you've seen under Kim Jong-un a number of steps taken to make things more efficient and more productive um, in terms of policies He's enacted. Um, and then you can also see the fruits of that too. You see North Korean companies and joint ventures with Chinese companies making more stuff and better quality stuff, frankly. And it's also changed people's expectations too. Um, there's slightly more allowed to be done in the economy, there's more opportunities for them. In terms of the future, you know, prognosticating on North Korea is a sucker's game, um, but it's A lot of it really does depend on the nuclear issue and and how that gets resolved and right now we're heading i think on a path towards more confrontation and conflict and so it's 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 difficult to see beyond that
0: how should the potential impact of these gradual ongoing changes affect the way that the united states south korea and other countries think about north korea policy
1: yeah i mean it's it's a big challenge and there's a lot of moving parts In that question, I mean, you have all of those countries you mentioned have been frustrated by attempts to work with North Korea. They've also been frustrated by attempts to pressure North Korea. Uh, It's a difficult place to find solutions to, especially when there's been so much political upheaval in South Korea and, and the
0: U.S., There's been a lot of hostile talk about North Korea from the political leadership in the U.S. this week, saber-rattling that's left the people of South Korea kind of just observers in what appears to be a pretty rapid lurch towards conflict on the peninsula. So with the recent collapse of the Park Geun-hye administration and with the progressive Minju Party likely to win the upcoming presidential election in late May, how do you see South Korean policy towards North Korea changing in 2017? Well, definitely
1: if Moon Jae-in wins i mean he was really embedded in the sunshine policy and this is
0: the candidate for the uh, minju party yeah.
1: if he if he wins we can expect some sort of attempt at engagement the, i guess the question is i think south koreans broadly speaking have learned from the sunshine policy and want to see a more cautious version of it it's hard to know what moon himself learned from the the struggles of the first sunshine policy. And you may see another unfortunate misalignment of of U.S. and South Korean goals regarding North Korea. It happened under Bush with Kim Dae-jung. Maybe in a way we will have flipped if Moon becomes president. And, you know, that leads to a, a difficulty in accomplishing political
0: goals. Do you think it's possible for leadership in North Korea and the United States to move past the provocative rhetoric? And how do we find a path towards achieving a permanent peace on the peninsula when it often seems like all the parties involved are bad actors?
1: It's going to require compromise from both sides that is just hard to imagine. Can Washington find a way to accept that North Korea is a nuclear state right now, you know, to this point no one no one has been able to really say that in in public. Um, although we have a president now who has less, uh, shall we say, commitment to the norms of, of international diplomacy. So in a, a sense, he might be more likely to find some kind of rhetorical breakthrough. North Korea, are they going to be able to accept a long sojourn of American troops in South Korea for decades yet? Yeah. In the early 2000s, they they sent some signals that they were Maybe okay with having the U.S. stick around for uh, a a long, long, interim period of decades. Are they there now? We don't really know, but it might be worth testing that that proposition.
0: If you could speak with those in charge of American foreign policy on how to engage with North Korean leadership, what would you tell them?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, first I would I'd wish them luck, um, and I think. I think I would tell them to review the the history of US North Korea relations since the Clinton administration because as you mentioned earlier there is quite a bit of tough talk now and we we're going to we'll solve this on our own if China's not going to help us yada yada but when you really look at the issue y- you come to see that that there are no really easy solutions and certainly not a unilateral one that will be satisfactory to people in South Korea, China, and leadership in those countries also. So in many ways, they're facing the the same awkward position that Clinton and Bush and Obama found themselves in. In in a way, a lot worse because things are a lot further down the line.
0: Andre Abrahamian is Associate Director of Research at Joseon Exchange, a nonprofit that provides training for DPR Koreans in economics, entrepreneurship, and urban planning. He was Executive Director of Joseon Exchange from 2012 to 2016. Andre, thanks for speaking with The Korea File.
1: Thanks for having me, Andre. That's
0: The Korea File for this week. To see Andre Abrahamian's full NAM Center Undergraduate Fellows Lecture, look for Social Changes You See When Working in North Korea on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the NAM Center's YouTube channel at UMichNCKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher, and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and AngloInfoSoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there, too, and on Twitter, at The Korea File, with daily links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And please take a minute to leave a review wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Then, on May 3rd, join us for a look at a different side of capitalism on the peninsula as I discuss docto nationalism, and commodification in a conversation with NAM Center postdoctoral fellow Ji-Yoon Ban. Until then, thanks for listening. From Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.